0: Warning. This episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. from the trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisnietz. On today's episode, I'm extremely excited to welcome John Wiswell, who is the author of Tank, among many, many other excellent, excellent short stories. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Uh, You have... I am not exaggerating when I say that you were on my initial wish list of guests for the show. I'm so glad that I can make that wish come true. Yeah, it's, you know, this this past year, I've said this on, on this show before, and I've said it on the episode of We Make Books that I was just on, has just been incredible in terms of turning my, like, guest ambitions into reality, in terms <laughs> of just, like... I'm friends with all these people now, and I can get them on the show. <laughs>
1: I've I've been loving this podcast. I loved the episode with AJ Hackworth. I loved the episode with Jennifer Mace. I thought you got a lot of insights in that in-depth interview with your cat. Uh, yeah, a lot of messages that we need to take to heart right now.
0: Uh, it's this, true. I'm, it's was, very true.
1: So I'm glad to be part of the ensemble.
0: Yeah, you are. You are uh, among a uh, a vaunted. Absolutely vaunted crew of guests. Uh, so, John, you're going to be reading Tonight at the Palindrome, is that correct? That is correct.
1: Unpublished, trunked, and for your ears and the ears of your listeners only. Excellent. Is there anything we need to know about it before we get going? I think we'll probably unpack it afterwards. Uh, just that This is one of the first short stories that I wrote after I started saying that I was a writer. Fantastic. Well, we're ready when you are. All right. Tonight at the Palindrome by John Wiswell, which is me. (laughs) This isn't a zombie story any more than it's a cartoon tiger story. Besides, the tiger tries to eat me way more often. It's just (laughs) that Big is my best friend, the only company I've had for almost two years at the Palindrome. You can get attached to anyone over that length of time. Anyone except that asshole tiger. (laughs) I can't forget that morning, the haze over the wasteland and the silhouette of another person out here amongst the emptiness. When I first saw him, I hopped right off of the porch and ran to him. I was so relieved to see another living person and hugged him before I realized he wasn't really living. (laughs) He he reciprocated by trying to take off my ear. I'm fine, though. He's not infectious. Uh, Now, he can't talk, but he's got one of those shirts, you know, the one that says, Big in English, and above it has the Chinese symbol for white tourist. Uh, (laughs) I can't tell if he's white or Chinese or something else on account of decomposition. Despite it, though, he's got a gut, which I respect. Uh, As a kid, I always wondered if they could starve to death, but he hasn't eaten much in months. Uh, And I know because I'm the only snack food around the palindrome. He's been the same (laughs) size since that first morning. That was the morning after I'd screened a zombie movie in the palindrome. A European thing with no subtitles. Lots of teens whose clothes keep falling off and droves of the undead. Uh, it was another couple of weeks of movies before I figured out how this place worked. Uh, you need company in a place like this, you see. The, the palindrome is the only building standing out here. It's a swanky movie house with a theater in the basement. Outside in big, gothic-style font with all the light bulbs blown out, it advertises to an empty landscape. Tonight at the palindrome! With no mm-hmm. movies scheduled on the board under it. All the wilderness, the cracked earth, the nothingness would get to you. It never gets too big, though. We hang out. The conversations are one-sided, but when your BFF would eat you if he could learn to climb stairs, you talk about whatever you want. (laughs) We've got a better trick than talking, too, since one day I tossed some chicken bones over the rail and Big started gnawing at them. I tossed one a little further away and darned if he didn't bring the thing back in his mouth. Fetch was inevitable. (laughs) A little Pavlov's magic later, and now he'll bring back sticks no matter how far I throw them. He drops him at the foot of the stairs. Not that I'm dumb enough to go down there until he wanders off. We're friends Mm -hmm. with the culture barrier. Uh, So I'm saying there's not much of an audience for film here. There are a few scattered foundations, like there used to be a town. One's got a basement that you do not want to visit. Uh, Mm -hmm. The remains of a brick wall are about 40 yards away from the porch. And I like to throw things at that wall just to hit it. It's not like I keep Mm -hmm. score. (laughs) Okay, I do. Uh, My best day was about 15,000 points, and I'll leave you to figure out how many hits that is. Big is kind enough to fetch my game pieces afterwards. So we live here at the palindrome, the only building in a ghost world. Would make a nice movie, right? I used to go exploring. Made a big mistake of checking out that basement across the way after watching The Jungle Book. That was before I realized what the palindrome does. Now he's down there. An animated tiger with a taste for something other than Frosted Flakes. If it wasn't for big, he would have gotten me. Instead, he ripped up the zombie's leg while I ran inside the palindrome and slammed every door between us that I could find. I saw him regularly until last week. Shere Khan, Walt Disney's gift to this world, eyes glowing in that doorless basement. He tries to talk me into visiting. And I'm kind of a rube, and he almost got me once. He's got a great voice. I was headed down the stairs when Big wandered in front of them. It scared me so much that I stepped back, and I barely evaded the Tiger's lunge. And the Tiger got a mouthful of Big instead, and I hauled Bass back inside the palindrome. Sometimes I wonder if Big wasn't warning me. Big's fine, by the way. I mean, even without the meat on his thigh, he doesn't sweat the Tiger. He's got the right attitude for this game. (laughs) You might ask how I got here. Now, I asked that for months, too. The first thing I remember is the body. The guy still had the gun in his hand. I didn't even realize I wasn't in Mom's house anymore until I made it to the lobby, calling for help. Except there wasn't anybody. No people, no phone, just a corpse in the projection booth. And I don't even remember what I was doing before I was here. Eventually, I buried the guy, though I wouldn't have wasted the time if I'd noticed the movie he'd been watching. See, he'd killed himself enjoying a tape labeled Dauber's Christmas 2008. I'm David Dauber, and that was the first movie my mom shot on her new digital camera. Sherry and I gave it to her for Christmas. How the hell it got onto VHS and all the way out here? I don't know. But it did, and this guy watched it. I've watched it a lot since, and yeah, I cried because no one else came. It's one per movie, baby. One zombie, one cartoon tiger, one croissant from a buddy cop movie, one David Dauber, and no one else, no matter how many times you watch it. To think I used to avoid my family and dream of moving out now, I miss that pull-out sofa with the springs that guarantee a sore back, and I'd drink that bitter coffee that no cream could cure, and I'd hug my little sister Sherry, and I'd never let her go, and I'd argue with my asshole stepfather about what a degree of journalism will do. I'm reporting from a magic movie theater in a dead world. Eat it, Ralph. You can only smile along with home movies for so long. Watch yourself decline a second slice of that divine pecan pie because you'll never get a girlfriend if you don't drop a belt notch. Well, I don't have a girlfriend. I have a boyfriend, and he's a zombie. (laughs) And every three days, there's a new VHS tape on my porch. Damn it, I would have gotten seconds on that pie if I'd known. Of course, you don't know. That's the way with change. That's the palindrome. So every third morning, a new movie shows up, at the top of the porch stairs. Big can't make it up there, and there's nobody else around. I wake up on the third day, and there it is. I've tried staying up all night. I didn't really want to know where they came from so much as I just wanted to see the delivery guy. You know, whatever shape, whatever size, whatever gender, just another human being to talk to, to see, to grab, just for a minute, you know? Mm. But if I manage to stay up, even... On through the next night, the tape doesn't come. It waits until I'm unconscious. Faking sleep doesn't work. Your eyelids droop, and before you're on guard again, there's your new movie. It's like one of those annoying cinematic tricks that directors get way too proud of. And, and VHS! VH freaking S! And you'd think this place would have gone digital by now. The palindrome would have filled this wasteland already if it had Netflix. I can't really press my luck because I need those movies for food. The previous operator left a nice cache of canned goods but not a lifetime supply. There are two rooms in the palindrome that are wall-to-wall with canned apricots, peas, carrots, noodle soup, and something called chicken substitute. Which (laughs) I really don't recommend. It's got (laughs) gnarly bones in there. You know all the stuff came from one of the movies. Even if I've never gotten a haul like that. Probably a movie set in a fallout shelter. None of it has expiration dates and I haven't gotten sick, but dry tuna and the same two veggies will eventually drive you insane. That's why I watch those movies. Not for entertainment. I've got to get some new food in here. And you can't predict what you're going to get. So you might as well watch both The Sound of Music and Godzilla vs. The Thing. I got a dress and a briefcase full of yen, in case you're wondering, out of those two. Uh, The dress showed up on the roof, and I saw the metal briefcase shining in the sunset on the horizon. The stuff can manifest anywhere, but when it appears outside the palindrome, big is usually good enough to bring it home for me. Teaching a zombie to fetch really felt worthwhile after he dropped a bag of extra crunchy potato chips on the foot of my porch. (laughs) I treasured those chips. Even the insultingly salty crustles at the bottom of the bag. He learned to only bring food. And at one time, he dropped off a severed head from a slasher flick. And while he doesn't speak English, I think my shrieking expressed our difference in tastes. Uh, (laughs) He was trying to be friendly, though, sharing one of his snacks. He's a good guy, even if he does gnaw on my shoe when I get too close to the railing. Even the dead get lonely at the palindrome. I think we'll pause there. It's, uh... Okay. That's the outset of Tonight at the Palindrome.
0: That's... so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate when people bring their early stuff on in general, because it it is so cool for me to be able to see, like, oh, this is where they came from, and... <laughs> in this case, like... That was entirely everything I think of when I think of a John Wiswell story. (laughs) It was, like, sad and laugh-out-loud funny at the same time, and, like... it. Thank you, buddy. Oh, thank you! I appreciate it. That means a lot. Uh, Listeners, we are recording this on the Year of Our Lord 2020, November 7th, and so if I'm a little extra emotional today (laughs) we understand why
1: it's uh yeah it's a pretty good day to hang out and tell stories with people
0: yeah so i want to know everything (laughs) about this story and especially like where the uh, realization of oh i've got a trunk this came from and sort of what your journey was into Saying that you were going to be a writer. Mm.
1: Okay. So. I wanted to be like a supernatural fantasy science fiction writer early on. And then made the mistake of going to a conventional college uh, where mm-hmm. they did not uh, want anybody to be that. And so I came out of it having grown a lot, but having really been been shaken in what I was supposed to produce. And. Having like you know binged the the classics and missing a lot of the science fiction and fantasy canon, and when mm-hmm. I was and was, so I was I was left after graduation not entirely sure where my career was supposed to go and what I could make that anybody would want, uh, and it was upon that that I went to a party and for the first time in my life uh, found a dog that fetched. <laughs> uh, and if you have not until your twenties encountered a dog that will bring a thing back to you, it's very magical. Uh, it was as about. It is very much like meeting an orc or a wizard. You're just like, oh wow, it's real. Uh, I heard, I'd heard tell of this thing, uh, and I spent the entire night talking to people and socializing, but in the back of my head, being like, what are other cool things that could fetch, and what is, <laughs> what would be the funniest thing that could fetch, uh, and it was a zombie. Uh, I used to write a lot more stuff with zombies in it. In fact, I have like a couple of trunk zombie stories, and then like about a dozen. Uh, zombie story ideas that I haven't written, um, because mm-hmm. if one wants to get published in short fiction, one does not write zombie stories unless Alan Datlow asks you to. Yeah. Uh, it's because you know editors have seen so many that have been terrible; they are biased against them. They either don't want them at all or are very picky, which is uh, seems very unfair to the writer uh, who has mm-hmm. never who has read maybe one issue of their magazine and is and is a new baby like I was. Oh, oh. Uh, but from the editor's standpoint, it makes a great deal of sense. Um yeah. uh, and if you've ever had had the the uh privilege to serve as like a slush reader, uh it's very easy to get tired of certain tropes. Mm-hmm. Uh and it is funny because uh the earlier drafts of this story were even more signaling that it was a zombie story. Which is the worst first impression that this story this four story could have made. Um uh, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, I just, I put pen to paper one night and I hadn't written anything of substance in months. And by substance, I mean anything more than a paragraph in months. And then I just, I just sat down one night. and I'm like, come on, try. And I wrote, you know, like 4,000 words in one sitting, which I hadn't done in since college. Um, and mm-hmm. hadn't, and hadn't done for fiction in longer than that. Uh, and it was just so invigorating uh, to let loose with the things that the college environment had sort of... Uh, pushed me to not do, which is be anarchically funny, uh, and to indulge science fictional conceits. And then what's funny is, uh, you say, uh, what the the path of this story is to getting coming trunked. Uh, this story then got rejected everywhere. In fact, I'm not exactly sure how many times it's been rejected. So I'm going to open up my, my personal, uh, submission history folder, and Fantastic. we're going to, we're going to count in real time, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, from a magazine that's gone out of business since then. 12, 13, 14, another magazine that's gone out of business since then. 15, also out of business since then. 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, out of business since then. 21, 21. 22, 23... Oh! Nope, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, (sighs) 33, 34, that's an anthology, but I'm counting it, uh, 35, 36, 37. This has been rejected 37 times. Uh, over the course of I'd say about uh, 15 years you know because I, I wrote this right uh, uh, shortly after college I think I was submitting it by maybe 2008 2010. so I guess so mm-hmm. between between 10 and 12 years of, of submissions um, and uh, I, I it actually got trunked twice. there was a period of two years where it was like well you can't write like that and get published um, which we'll probably talk about a little greater length a little a little later. Uh, of course, yeah. Uh, and then late, and then, still later, I saw all of the flaws in this story and, and realized that I could completely rewrite it from the ground up uh, and probably sell a version of it, or I could trunk it entirely. And I have come to a place in my career where I don't re- do massive rewrites a lot. I, on short fiction, I tend to just go write a new thing. Um, mm mm-hmm. You know, like, and if anybody knows me from Twitter or knows me from my work, like, the reason that I have a bunch of sales right now is that I just go and write a new thing a lot of the time. Um, yeah. Um, and so that this story kind of went on the back burner, and I have a lot of fondness for certain elements of it. You know, it was wonderful to hear you laugh at, at certain parts of it. I do adore those those jokes and the, those weird points. Um, mm-hmm. Even now, I can, like, I can see how to reorganize it. Right. But it it just did not, uh, it 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 has wound up not quite fitting, um, mm-hmm. the the current uh, literary landscape. Uh, if you'll indulge, uh, I I guess I I left the hanging uh, the dangling thread of what what is was publishable and was not publishable back when I started. Uh, but mm-hmm. I've just monologued for so long that I'd really like to give you an opportunity to jump in
0: and and respond. Not a problem. Yeah. So I mean, there's a there are a lot of things that we can talk about from there. Uh, the first one that I want to bring up, for people who for people who are listening to this show who don't follow John on Twitter, uh, if you are on Twitter, why the hell not? <laughs> if you're not on Twitter, how did you find this show? <laughs> but, you know, I'm glad to have you here. But one of the reasons that you were... Uh, like in the top 10 names I put on my wish list for this show is every month, John, you do a rundown uh, in one or more tweets of your publishing statistics for the month and for the year. And that's something that I do myself whenever I send a story out, get a response on a story uh, under the hashtag sync or submit. And it's not something that I see many people do. And I think it's something, you know, the reason I ho- I started this whole show was to talk about this topic of when a story doesn't work and, like, being honest about the fact that you spend a lot of time and emotional energy sending things out yeah tremendous amount um
1: and at, at various points i don't think it's just new writers I, th- I think there's there's a lot of attention on new writers feeling burned out by by the initial wave of rejections that they will usually experience uh, i certainly did and almost every writer mm-hmm. i've ever known has uh had the had the tea the dark tea time of the soul uh, yep but then it's across your career, like even I this year have had points of like, well, maybe that's it. Maybe maybe I just don't know how to write anything good anymore uh, or anything that anybody will want anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I feel like everybody hits those, especially if you do high volume. Um, but also then if you don't have high volume, if you have the one story that I'm like, well, oh, this is the one I believe in. Firstly, that's very perilous. That is that is tightrope walking between the Twin Towers or something. You are, oh, yeah. You are really... Uh, I really hope that there's a happy ending um, to that one story. But even then, if you were to just... If you were to sell the one story, you would then end with zero... To then sell anywhere else um, mm-hmm. and and but but and you know, I hope the one story sells, but I also hope that you write the next story, and those those threads that I write, I'm always trying to encourage people you know to write to finish, which is something a lot of people struggle with, uh, hopefully to revise, you know, don't submit your first draft, uh, yep. to submit uh, because it is then very easy to leave a thing in your folder forever. Um, You don't have to submit immediately. Certainly not like there's you're like, well, this is going to be a a magazine of science fiction and fantasy story and they're not open until January. I'm going to wait until January. That is smart freaking work. Uh, Yeah. But then and then the final piece I try to add in the thread every every month is take care of yourself. Uh, Yeah, because if you don't if you don't manage your the emotional side of the submissions, you will just get ground into a fine powder. Uh, yeah, it's it's so easy to get burned out. It's so easy to get a string of really tough rejections. And sometimes it's just like you got a slew of forms and sometimes it's three uh, personals in a row that were all like, this was really close. You're like, I will never get behind the gatekeeper. Uh, mm-hmm. And I can't say that you will. I sure can't say that you won't. I can say that you won't if you don't try again. But that advice isn't worth a damn if you've just had those three personals. Like I get it, and so I do threads like this to try to make people feel less isolated. I mm-hmm. don't. I don't want people to feel like the Arkady Martins and At Greenblatts of the world just are always selling everything and always have. Uh, right. And I'm not them. I, they're they're lovely people, and they have spoken about their processes and their paths to publication. Uh, in their own time. But what I do have is all the access to all the data I have about my submissions. Uh, and it was about, I think it was about like three years ago when I just, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting published enough, meaning at least once a year, that I can talk about this. And, and I already talk about when I sell a thing, but nobody's mm-hmm. really talking. And, and then occasionally you might see a tweet from somebody who's just like, I am heartbroken, I got rejected yeah. In the final round of Uncanny or something, and you're like, you have every reason to feel gutted. Like it, that's that's rough. It is ha- having as someone who has been there mm-hmm. so many times, I get you.
0: Um, yeah, but yeah, uh, I've you know you, I was shortlisted me. in the last, I think the last six months of Shimmer being a <sighs> magazine that was selling things. I got shortlisted, and it was ultimately we're really sorry we don't buy Flash. <laughs> we really want to buy this story, but we just don't buy Flash. Whoa. And I was like, you know, that that is rough. I still count that story as active, but there aren't a whole lot of places to send a very small, very shimmery story. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's gutting. But at the same time, like... I got to the final round with shimmer. Yeah. Like, you know, at least knows my name from that story, and mm-hmm. that's huge for me. Like every time I've made it when I met Julia Rios at at WorldCon in San Jose a few years ago, I was like I just so much appreciated the kindness with which Fireside treated me after uh, I got to the final round with one of their submission windows. And she was like, oh yeah, I remember that story. I really liked that and I wish we could have bought it. And it was just like, you know, I would have loved to have sold, but the fact that like Julia remembers me for that story Mm -hmm. is something that, like, I think has to be acknowledged. And if it just is, uh, you know, if we're just talking about rejections as a sad thing, mm. then that joy gets glossed over Like, the rejection game is absolutely a grind. Uh, the, the submission game, I should yeah call uh, it. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> the That's... submission game is absolutely a grind, but, like there are so many places where you get to make the call of, do I let this be a thing that breaks me down or a thing that encourages me to do the better thing next time? hmm Yeah. Uh, and, and I do think that, that at a
1: lot of points in a lot of people's careers, like getting a hold notice is a huge victory, and it is so easy to to neglect it because it didn't mm-hmm. it didn't go all the way um uh, and part of that I think is that is that we look at other writers entirely from the outside um
0: mm-hmm.
1: so like you know just going back to these threads that I do I I do them because some people might know me from my publications and I want to know I want them to know that I am a golem of rejections yeah that uh, like <laughs> I have uh, I I only look like like five stories that you might have read this year um and that that is to normalize it and demystify it, and I, you know, like mm-hmm. you and I are not the only people who do this. There there are hashtags. I think uh, Bogey uh does great work trying to demystify uh,
0: yep. some of this. Um, yeah, and so... I really ap- appreciate what they uh, what A does on on Twitter in general, and a um, recent thread about uh, like working on getting representation for anthologies Mm -hmm. was another big thing where, like, I think something that I didn't see uh, when I finished college and was, like, trying to make writing happen more for me was, even when I first joined Twitter as, like, a, you know, oh, a writer should have a Twitter, you know, in 2011, 2012, people were starting to say that as, like, a serious thing and not a jokey thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which, you know, I don't think is entirely true, but it is where I know most of my writing friends from. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't that conversation there eight years ago. No. No, there was just touting of success. Yeah. And, And to some degree, it made Twitter
1: feel like, the uh room party or cocktail party at a convention where there's the sofa of award winners that you do not approach
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then you can go over be over here near like the windows uh yeah and i you know much as like you and i at conventions would rather circulate and try to draw people to the sofa uh and and tear down the barriers because you never know where where good people are but gosh you want to connect them um uh, Twitter, you know, we're slowly trying to pull down some of the barriers and trying to make people feel more comfortable with their work. You know, the same thing with um, right now is November. It's National Novel Writing Month. Uh, yep. And I've been, you know, that nano is not my thing. It never has been. I, I work on my own timetable. I don't work great in groups anyway, but gosh, it works so well for so many people. And I try to encourage them, I try to encourage as many people as I can on Twitter, like, take the group enthusiasm if it works for you and get some productivity. It's going to mm-hmm. be a heck of a month. You know, we just had this election. There's going to be something terrible in the middle of the month. Even if it's not terrible, Twitter will decide it's terrible and you'll be distracted yeah. by it. And then you're going to end the month seeing your relatives at Thanksgiving. So really like what I'm telling you right now is just have a job. Have a do a word uh mm-hmm. ha- and and get the most out of it you can. Don't don't necessarily grind yourself to a goal that you can't attain, and then beat yourself up for it. Uh, if you write yeah. a short story in November, you are ahead of most writers on Earth. Uh, yeah. It is it is stressful. Uh, like, right now, I'm, I'm trying to get myself to finish an essay. And I love this essay. But gosh, it's just, you know, you're so distracted with everything. Oh my god,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, I, I had yesterday off because our CEO decided that 2020 had been enough, and we should just have a day off, <laughs> which I deeply appreciate because I had written. I'm doing Nano, and I had written 300 words in the previous two days, and was like, okay, well, you know, I wrote over 2,000 words yesterday. I'm not caught up, but I wrote over two thousand words for the first time i think in 2020 mm-hmm. in a single day and like you know i nano has never been a thing i have won it's been a thing i've attempted usually in more or less a vacuum before mm-hmm. where the groups that i that i have the writer friends that i have the since i've been part of those groups i haven't tried to do nano in a serious way Mm -hmm. um and like this year having the support that i have with my friends on twitter my friends on various slacks has been tremendous for getting words down and everybody's and and what i've been trying to say myself on twitter and elsewhere is like any words you write are winning Mm-hmm. You are winning National Novel Writing Month by attempting to write any words. Yeah.
1: yeah. I remember, like, the, when I finally got to see behind the curtain of some professional novelists, I was shocked how many of them uh, said they were doing NaNo and were actually just kind of coasting. Being like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, this helps me hit, like, I have a novel due in January, I'll probably get 20,000 words done this month, and NaNo will help that. It's like, what? And I realized, like, none of them, like, none of them were doing it the way that it was supposed to work. uh, Because Mm -hmm. they were doing it the way that worked for them, because the actual task was meeting a contractual obligation.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And I, like, I love that. And then once I realized that, like, almost none of the novelists I knew were doing it right. Except for Curtis Chen, who one year was like... Yeah, I'm doing nano uh, twice in one month. I'm doing double nano. <laughs> I'm writing a hundred thousand words this month because I got a book in, November, in, in December or whatever. Yeah. All right, sure. Uh, you're the you're the overachiever uh, for this class. Yeah. The yeah, is I think brilliant.
0: like I know that uh, Mary Robinette Kowal will often do nano to knock out an actual contractual novel and. You know, she offers a lot of great advice for that. Mm-hmm. And I think the best advice anybody has ever given for NaNo, which is, I've heard from so many people, is if it doesn't work for you, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Like, NaNoWriMo is a great institution because it encourages so many people who would not otherwise write anything yeah. to write. Yeah, And uh... if you write... And it doesn't work, and you know it doesn't work for you. Don't do it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think I'll, for a lot of people, it introduced the concept of writing to hit word count. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the number of people who you tell, like, "Oh, I wrote a I wrote a five thousand word sh- uh, short story," and they're like, "Oh, how many pages is that?" Like, yeah. because the average reader doesn't like read in terms of words. Uh, mm-hmm. You didn't grow up being like, "I can't wait to one day write a three thousand nine hundred eighty word story that hits this guideline." <laughs> Like nobody, nobody does that, and and so uh, to some degree, Nano winds up being educational for how long it takes you to hit a word count goal. And for some people, it's transformational because someone like Shawna McGuire would be like, I am gonna, I am gonna roll these dice, and I am gonna, I am gonna write ten times the number of words that come up on the dice, and then I get a small reward. Uh, and it mm-hmm. is that is the micromanaging of word count that works for her. Um, word count wound up ironically not working for me at all. Uh, and that mm-hmm. but when I talk about that, like it's not that nobody should do WordCat. You should see if it works for you. Uh, yeah For me, weirdly, it's always been uh, plot or scene goals. Uh, once mm-hmm. once, X, once I've written X, y, and z, I can stop for today yeah. because I tend to ride uh, the invigoration of getting a part of a story done. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of people just don't work like that. and it would be criminal if then everybody tried to conform to my way. Because then 15 Mm -hmm. people would still write. I guess I... No, everybody should write the way I do so that I can thrive in a lack of competition.
0: Uh, (laughs) But
1: outside of that, they should not write the way that I write. Uh, And I I love that NaNo has exposed so many people to this different way of thinking about producing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's... uh, The... the, Like, team that I am writing with for NaNo this year is... uh, my wife and one of her childhood friends, and uh, one of our friends who just moved to the area after uh, finishing law school, and uh, we met them through a mutual friend from college. Mm. And you know i'm I am the only professional writer of the group. And like, our one friend is at twelve thousand words already. And she hit 10,000 words on, like, day three. Mm. And, like, you know, she's been doing NaNo for years, but, like, you know, she, as far as I know, doesn't have, like, ambitions of selling stories, becoming a novelist. Like, she's very happy with what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sitting here as the quote-unquote professional who has, you know, a couple of paying story sales and at this point i think is most notable as a podcaster you know i've got seven thousand words that's Mm -hmm. great for me yes but like i guess my thought on nano is like like you were saying it gives that sense of writing to word count but it also gives uh like gives people a sense of what deadline means Mm -hmm. in a way that like I, I don't think school deadlines ever meant anything to me <laughs> yes. because when I was in school, I didn't have anything else to do. Yeah. And so I could bang out a paper, like bang out a 5,000 word paper the night before it was due and turn it in and get an A and be fine, <laughs> you know? So I wanted to ask a bit more about your experience of, uh, going to college Mm. and being in that environment of don't write genre because that's something that is near and dear to my heart as uh i you know i went to warren wilson college got a bachelor's in creative writing and was like very proudly anti-establishment in (laughs) that i basically never listened to anybody when they said no you can't write genre Mm mm-hmm but I know that that wasn't the experience for everybody.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, and there are colleges with faculty that are very excited for people to try to write science fiction, fantasy, and the other genres. Uh, but there, I had some of the stereotypical experience of running into a bunch of literary snob professors. Mm-hmm. And they didn't make up the entire faculty. But like, this was the first... In college was the first time I learned anybody disliked Louis L'Amour. I remember like hearing that and just being like, who has the time to have that opinion? Like what yeah. how did, in your life would you and like they hated Stephen King and nobody was interested in Jared Tolkien. Um and I didn't I like and this college was so removed from the genre genres that I didn't hear the name Ursula K. Le Guin until after I graduated. Uh i never I didn't grow up with her work and I didn't hear about her. And I didn't hear about a lot of just these brilliant, like Richard Matheson. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I might have heard the, the name Shirley Jackson and heard of the lottery, but like didn't even hear about Shirley Jackson uh, and didn't read Shirley Jackson until like my mid 20s. Uh, so I went, I went to college. I went to a, uh, to Bennington in Vermont, which uh, was a place where I made absolutely wonderful friends who I will cherish for the rest of my mortal life. Um, mm hmm. But I ran into a brick wall of people who wanted to teach how to understand literature and not how to produce uh, much. I remember being flabbergasted, and and I was young enough when I was applying to colleges that I didn't know to ask for this until it was too late and I was already in one. I was like, well, where's the class in marketing? Where's the class in getting a publisher? Mm-hmm. I don't. How do you? Where's the? Like, I've 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 been in two. Uh, literature classes now and I haven't heard anything about a relationship with an editor. What, Where, where is any of this? I'm like, oh, they don't teach you jack shit about that. Oops. I swore I, my story had a curse word in it and as I read that, I was like, oh, I, this this might not be okay. Uh, but they they weren't interested in the business um, mm-hmm. and they weren't interested in a lot of what was being produced today. I remember there were a couple of lit fic Uh, breakthroughs like Lovely Bones by, I believe that was Alice Siebold. and they would come up and they would just immediately be like, oh yeah, that's midlist fiction. And they would just go back to talking about Faulkner. And I'd be like, I don't, I may have made mistakes. Uh, And like, I'm sure that if I had taken all the money that I put into college and it instead used it to fund being an intern at like Tor or something, I would have had just a much faster-tracked career because I would have learned very different things that would have been more... uh, applicable to a career in this as mm-hmm. opposed to a career in writing uh theses. Uh and in right. fact my my thesis was a horrible epic fantasy novel. Uh because I found the one I, so I I I Tale the first uh we had a semi-famous literary fiction writer in residence who the faculty despised, who I will not name, uh um, <laughs> uh who despised because he had success. Um and uh, I had already been rejected from one creative... Write- the only creative writing uh, 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 class my first semester um, mm-hmm. after having submitted fantasy. And I was like, I didn't know why. And why was she so mean when she told me to go away? <laughs> um, and it's fine. She's dead now. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but then there's... Uh, and 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 I came to realize that like there aren't a lot of people in at this college who are writing genre fiction, and most of them that do don't take literary courses. Uh, have I made terrible mistakes? And so uh, this this August writer then offered mm-hmm. a creative writing class, and I wrote him a beautiful uh, short story about what it is to be disabled in an abusive home, which is based on my lived experience. And he loved it, and he accepted me. And I said, "Great! By the way, I'm bringing my fantasy novel to this creative writing class now that I'm in, uh, and you're going to have to help me." And he was like, "I think this other professor might be more useful to you." And I was like, "Oh, really? Well, you signed the document." And I was in this stupid class, and I and so it was me, and this was this became a firing squad of a creative writing class where they just everybody oh was like, "What? Why is he bringing the sword guy fiction?" To this, like, I brought a stor- short story about how horrible it is to be rich and occasionally do drugs. What is this low? Uh, and some of the writers in that class were very talented. Um, but this was the way that I, like, had to get in to get feedback and to, to work and uh, try to try to just learn something from somebody who had accomplished something at that college. I. Kind of mm-hmm. fooled my way in now, uh, tail the second, there was one nerd on the faculty, and he looked <laughs> exactly right to be to be an extra in peter jackson 's shire like he was <laughs> He was delightful uh, Waynehoff Minoser. I have no problem uh, name dropping that that lovely man um, who was just very interested in world literature he had written. A, a scholarly paper on Tolkien, but he 'd also written scholarly papers on the Nibelungan lead and uh, chinese fiction and just he was he was super interested in different ways of telling stories and the way the different cultures have told stories, uh, avoiding the cambellian monomyth uh, mm-hmm. what do you want to call it uh, fallacy uh, yeah <laughs> um, and so he he actually like gave me he, he signed me up for a quote unquote tutorial. Uh, where I just got to study with him on on how different cultures had done epic fiction, uh, still with no uh, relevance to modern publishing, but at least I was like learning something, and he indulged me and and helped me write. Uh, a thesis, and it, w- it he, he helped me sign up to write an epic fantasy novel as my quote-unquote thesis, and I loved going to the graduate, not to the graduation, to the presentation of the theses, and my thesis was three times thicker than the next thickest one, <laughs> because it's a goddamn doorstopper <laughs> epic fantasy novel about a dude what gets stuck in a magic woods. Uh, and it was a super was problematic so book looking back at it, but it was just like I needed, I needed to do that climb. You were going to say something, please.
0: I I was just gonna say that's absolutely delightful to show up with a doorstopper epic fantasy as your thesis. <laughs> uh, we I had the great fortune of growing up in a household of fans, mm. and uh, my father back in the eighties worked for one of the magazines. Why can't I remember right mm. now? I think astounding uh or amazing one of the a magazines <laughs> one back when trs was a concern mm-hmm. uh and you know has has his story of being Loic, lois lois mcmaster bujold's first fan <laughs> because he read a story that the magazine had trunked uh read the cover letter from a story that the magazine had trunked and said this is the greatest cover letter of all time. This person's going somewhere. <laughs> Excellent. So I I grew up knowing a thing or two in general about sort of the business, at least in terms of, like, write a cover letter, mm-hmm. send a thing, wait, get rejected, <laughs> try again. Uh, before I arrived at college, but... Uh, you know, we we did have in our final semester, like the capstone class for the creative writing track was the uh, senior fiction something. I don't remember, but it was the place where finally we talked about. Okay, our assignment one week was submit a story, like research markets, send something out, and I was like, oh. I've been doing this for five years already. <laughs> um, which is which is not to say, obviously, that uh, I think down on most of my professors from my time there. Uh, they are, by and large, a wonderful group of people. And uh, I am not going to name any of them so that none of them figures out that they were the one I didn't like. <laughs> sure. But... You know, I I also ran into this thing of just like everybody sort of having this idea, except for one professor, having this idea of, oh, genre is not a thing we write. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, you know, the, the challenge for me was making genre palatable to the literary audience, mm-hmm. which I think taught me something about like wordsmithing at least yes but it it wasn't until i had a teacher who said i don't care what you write just make it good that like i really got to take off there so it, you know i i i bring this all up just to sort of acknowledge that like it is good if you want to uh if if going to college for creative writing is a thing that is within your means Mm -hmm. and is something that works for you, do that, and it is not necessary. Yeah, absolutely. By any means, because there are as many tracks towards success as there are people writing.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: That's a a great way of putting it. Yeah. Um, So at this point, this weird blue police box just showed up in the room behind me uh and i was wondering maybe if john you could step into this time machine with me for a second and uh if we could go back to uh the dawning of the era of wiswell as a fiction writer (laughs) and talk to young john and just offer any words of wisdom of what you wish you had known then that you know now.
1: Okay, yeah, that I, that is a great prompt. I haven't I haven't done a prompt like this in a long time. Um, so yeah, young John, um, the field is going to get so much more diverse than you believe it can be. Um, you're reading a lot of classics right now and wondering if you just hate this genre entirely. Um, mm-hmm. You're you don't, uh, you hate how stifled it is. Uh, the writers that haven't been published yet that are going to blow your mind are on their way and are fighting their way through. And in fact, they're going to help make a way through for you. Uh, some of them are actually going to want to talk to you and are going to like your work and it's going to blow your mind. Uh, and then you Mm -hmm. are going to be able to turn around and, and return the favor, uh, to writers who haven't been published yet, who need your help. Uh, extend the hand, uh, Help out where you can. uh, The best way that you can network... Some people are going to be better at networking than you. That's fine. Your way of networking is treating everybody you meet like a human. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you do not know what somebody is going to be in 10 years. Uh, So why not treat everybody like they matter now? Um, You're going to... You're going to have a long period where you think that serious fiction is the only thing that can... Is the only thing that can sell. And so you're going to try to give up on things like Tonight at the Palindrome and instead try to ape the really sad, depressing, constantly raiding, noir-influenced stuff uh, Hmm. that you haven't been enjoying reading anyway. Uh, I'm sorry. Stop reading those magazines. Go read other ones. Yeah. Uh, Also, they will always take themselves too seriously and some markets will never have a sense of humor. And I'm sorry about that. There are markets that will have a sense of humor and there are markets that are going to care about warm-hearted fiction. In fact, there are writers who are very warm-hearted that you just haven't found yet. I'm sorry you don't know who Diana Wynne-Jones is. You will, though. It'll happen, I swear. Uh, Oh, Diana Wynne-Jones. You know, and... uh, yeah, uh, there there are there are amazing there are amazing stories, but there are a lot of stories that just aren't gonna be told, and uh, unless you put pen to paper, or really in your case, with the nerve imbalance in your fingers, uh, throw the pen away and get a keyboard, uh, and I be as weird as you can, and then be quicker to realize that you should put as many weird things into a story as fit the length. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot have a story structure that nobody's ever seen before featuring characters like nobody's ever seen before and pacing that nobody's ever seen before because nobody will understand it. Make three stories and have each of them do a thing. Uh, experiment. And it's okay to fail. You're terrified of failure. You're not the only writer who's terrified of failure. Someday you're going to be doing these threads about how often you fail now that you're a success. It's fine to blow it. Because you get another at bat, all you have to do is write a different story with the same idea and give it a different Mm. title, and you can submit it again. Um, It is... Failure is an educational opportunity, especially in the creative space. And I know it hurts, but uh, realistically, if anybody ever just straight up will constantly refuse uh, to accept you, uh, they are not who gets to define you. Uh so anyway, that's my advice I mean that's that's my advice really to anybody who is is struggling for that identity and that success in their own work.
0: God damn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Those are some words of wisdom. I thank you. Some words of wisweldom. <laughs> there thank we you. go. We got a pun in. <laughs>
1: You know, I just finished a novel, and I'm actually going to send out the queries for it literally tomorrow. And uh, a friend, a very smart friend of mine, was like, "You do not want an agent who does not accept you for who you are. Put a pun in the cover letter. Yeah. <laughs> if they reject you, they are the wrong one." And I was like, "How do I fit a pun in?" And I realized the title of the novel's a pun. I'm yeah. set. <laughs> uh, wordplay. Excellent. What an idea! Have fun with your words. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank and you. one of the things that struck me from uh, the very start of those truly inspirational words of wisdom was to tell your younger self and to tell the people who are out there listening now, uh, who hopefully know this more than, you know, you or I did when we were starting out, that there are people out there, who are like you, who will like you for who you are, no matter how weird you are, no matter how queer you are, yep. no matter, you know, none of that matters as long as you are a human to them and they are humans to you. Yep. And I, you know, as somebody who has been working in this field, working towards submitting for uh 15 years god time is fake 15 (laughs) years good lord it's counterfeit it can't be real it's unbelievable that the shift that has happened in those 15 years has been astronomical in terms of the voices that are getting centered the voices that are getting heard for the first time that like I would not have I wouldn't have even known what to think Mm. like I didn't even have the vocabulary to understand like talking about this person is an asexual author this person is a genderqueer man like any of my own identity would not have made sense to me 15 years ago and you know to get to see people being genuine to their identities in their fiction is i think life-saving oh yeah oh my god that's one of
1: the best changes in, in fiction is that people can be honest about this like We spent all these years talking about purple dragons, but we couldn't talk about that there might be more than two genders. Like, this is... Yeah. Oh, man, this is so much better. And I I love any slipstream thing where, like, the reality is that you're non-binary and the weird thing is squitter floating around, where Mm -hmm. the thing that grounds you is something that culture says isn't normal. And And then you show that that's normal by having the fantastic element in there that isn't grounded. I love this shit. It's so good. Yeah, the it's same thing so for, for normalizing disabilities, for normalizing uh yeah, so many so many different identities. Uh I yeah, yeah I agree. It's one of the best thing best changes and developments in the genre.
0: And um if I if I can make a plug for one of your stories, Tank was a story that I didn't know how much I needed until I read it because so to Sum up tank in as few words as possible (laughs) without giving too many things away. It is the story of a tank going to a con. (laughs) That's right. And dealing with being awkward at a con and finding their people Mm -hmm. at a con. Uh, And, like, I, a socially awkward person, found so much joy and heart in that story about an actual literal tank <laughs> going to a con and finding people who loved the tank for being a tank and not for the tank trying to be not a tank yeah oh thank you so and much. also there's a cowboy bebop reference in it <laughs> yeah yeah which like I hoped there would be from the title <laughs> and the end completely pays it off. Like, <laughs> Yeah, at a
1: certain point, I actually did one reading of that story where it's like, hey, does everybody here know what Cowboy Bebop is? Okay. <laughs> this, this is the most in-joke part or the most in, what do you say, in-conversation part of that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Every, everything else is, yeah. I just, uh, thank you so much for saying that and for relaying that to me. I... Uh yeah, that's because that's you know, it's a story about a lot of people, it's a story about me. I am awkward. I used to be so much more awkward. I just oh okay. Related I cut my teeth on a I'm podcast about 15 years ago. Sorry. I'm ready for it. Okay, yeah. Fifteen years ago, about fifteen years ago, I cut my teeth on a podcast. Every every week, I would call in. I was one of their guests, or not guests, but like one of their callers who asked their people mm-hmm. questions. And I'm going to keep this vague so nobody can track it down. Uh, I mean, I was just so intentionally awkward and so desperately in need of some socialization that I wasn't getting for various reasons. Um, and I recently, I was like, man, I wonder how bad I was. And so I tracked that podcast out, and lo and behold, it still exists. And I went into their archives, and I went to find the episodes where I knew I had called in. And all the archives are dead. And I was like, "Oh, thank God, <laughs> God, there's no proof that I was that like that I was that big a dweeb." Uh, but you know, I, I, like, tank comes from a lot of lived experience. But then, the allegorical and the ana- analogical aspects are are just as, as powerful right like i mean the story the the tank hates revolving doors is uh to the audience i was a wheelchair user for a while and i will be again i hate revolving doors
0: mm-hmm.
1: um anyway and actually the first time i did a reading i had a couple of of uh wheelchair users in the audience they were like yo yeah those are the worst um but you know, like I, 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 have, I have my awkwardness, which is one of the reasons that I try really hard to open doors at, uh, mm-hmm. at conventions for people um, because just because you're awkward doesn't mean that you lack value you know like mm-hmm. And just because like, you' just because you're an introvert right like maybe you're the sort of person who prefers to spend a lot of the time listening. You should, that doesn't mean that you should be treated as a creeper who's on the periphery. I want to let, yeah. I want to let people in. I think this this community is better if we treat it as a community. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, yeah, and, and that obviously is why that story is that story. Uh, I really appreciate you bringing it up. It is, it is. I guess a lot of people say like the quintessential Wiswell story or Wiswellian story. Let's mm-hmm. Just try to make people a little kinder
0: or a little more compassionate, uh, yeah. and then make them laugh. Yes, and then make them laugh. <laughs> John. I appreciate your being on this show so very much. Uh, It has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, before we go, uh, one, are there any things upcoming that you would like our listeners to know about from you? Uh, Let's see. I
1: am probably going to have an essay up at Sarah Gailey's Stone Soup next week about why uh, Akira Toriyama's Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z should be part of the fantasy canon. Um, Excellent. And, uh, yeah, we didn't we did talk about anime and manga. A bigger influence on me than Orson Scott Card ever could have been. Uh, but, yeah. yeah but, uh, and then um, uh, this month's issue of Uncanny Magazine is the first issue I've ever had a short story in. Uh, the Bottomless Martyr. Thank you very much. Uh for you know, like telling tales outside of school, I have been held at Uncanny since their first slush. Uh, this is this is the first time that I've gotten in. Uh, it's been wonderful working with them. I'm very proud of that story. That story is a very it's one of my harder ones. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it it content warning. It is about uh, escaping the ideation of self harm. Um, that one is called the Bottomless Martyr. Um, it is. You can get it if you subscribe this month. Uh, it will be free to read December
0: first. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so those those would be my upcoming things. Excellent. And uh, listeners, links to all of the above will be available in the show notes, as always. Uh, I believe that the uh, essay in sarah gailey's here's the thing will be only available to paying subscribers but if you have uh if you have the money absolutely uh i would recommend supporting sarah supporting here's the thing uh you know these these are the income streams that help working artists live Mm -hmm. and uh so i never begrudge anybody having a paid newsletter. I think that they are, uh, I think they're a really wonderful way to get content into the hands of people who want that content. Mm. Um, and I have really liked these personal canon series that they have been doing. Yeah. Um, they are uh, some of the best essays I've read in a long time, and I'm really excited to uh, to read that essay from you. Thank you. And I know we've talked a lot about finding you online already. John, where can people actually go and find you on the interwebs? Uh, if you're on Twitter, I am at Wiswell,
1: W-I-S-W-E-L-L. It's my last name. Um, uh, you can find me on Facebook the, like two times a week that I look at it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and just as John Wiswell, and I'll be, it'll be the one with their uh, very happy fat person picture. Uh, and, uh, you can find my blog, uh, the bathroom monologues, uh, at johnwiswell.blogspot.com. Um, and that will,
0: uh, have a steady update of every publication I have coming out. Fantastic. Excellent. John, thank you so, so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a wonderful talk. This has been a great way to spend tonight.
0: Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I, I say this on Twitter, certainly after every time I record a podcast, uh, whether it's an episode of this show or guesting on somebody else's show now, which is a thing that happens and is banana pants. Uh, but podcasting, I think is one of the, uh, biggest, Things that has improved my mental health over the past two years because it is a way to connect with my friends, to make new friends, and to share that with the world. Mm. So I really appreciate your joining me. I really appreciate you having me, and I really appreciate you putting it out there because
1: podcasting is uh, healthy for the creator. It's also incredibly healthy for the consumer. There have been so many times mm-hmm. when I've put on a podcast, yours included. Uh, just to unwind when I couldn't get the brain to read anymore. Uh, But I, yeah, but I need, you need like one, like 0.1 socialization. You know, like Mm -hmm. 0.1, not 1.0. That's too much. Uh, Yeah.
0: Just enough socialization that somebody else is doing a friendship. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you. Listeners, join us again on the third Friday of December, when our guest will be Phoebe Barton. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBisnyx. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.